Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu slash business. From the Sorrell College of Business, I'm Judson Edwards, and this is The Double Dome, a business geeks podcast from Troy University. Welcome back to another episode of The Double Dome. It's time to put our heads together again. And as business geeks over in the Sorrell College, where I'm the dean, we're always looking for something new to learn. I've always said, before you know where you're going, it's important to know where you've been. That's why I'm excited to introduce my guest today, historian and director of the Wiregrass Archives, Dr. Marty Olaf. On this episode, we'll talk about the history and evolution of business education in Alabama. While much has changed since the days of ledger books and handwritten accounting, we can learn a great deal from how these early business teachers did their thing. So if you're ready, let's take a stroll into the past to find out how business used to be taught in the great state of Alabama. Marty. Welcome to the Double Dome Podcast. I'm so glad to have you here. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. So let's talk about it. Uh, business education in Alabama, uh, mm-hmm. but let's start with kind of business education in general from a, a college university standpoint. Maybe give us a little of that history. The stuff that I found by looking at college catalogs mostly, and I was lucky enough that a lot of these college catalogs from at least the larger schools are available online, was that most of the so-called business education began as commercial education, commercial training in things like stenography and telegraphy and typewriting. These were courses of study. Now, before you think about, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I could type for two years in a, in a <laughs> training course. A lot of these lasted a very short period of time, and I'll talk about that in a second. But the first college that I found was um, what was then called Alabama Agricultural and Mechanical Institute, which in 1899 changed its name to Alabama Polytechnic Institute in 1960 changed it to Auburn University. But in 1878, and this stopped in 1883, we see that this precursor to Auburn had a two-year degree with commercial courses added into it. Or you might say that it was commercial courses with some classical liberal arts added on to it. And I don't think that that was an attempt to create professional managerial education. I think it was an attempt by the school to create a curriculum that would attract some students or that some of their students who weren't really sure that they wanted to go on in school for a liberal arts education, at, which at that time was math and classical languages and, and right. things like that. They might not want to go on and finish their degree for that, but if they had an opportunity to get some practical training in skills that were immediately applicable, and mm-hmm. man, does this sound contemporary or what? Yes, yes. Um, so this business of what do I do with a college degree out in the world has, has been ongoing 
for a long time, certainly since the mid-19th century. So Auburn had that two-year degree program that was, I guess, kind of cobbled together. That lasted until about 1883. And when I say it lasts till 1883, it means that after 1883, I no longer see it in the catalogs. Then in 1896, the brand new girls industrial school, or what we might want to call the white girls industrial school, which sounds like a reform school, but it's not, turned into the University of Montevallo after becoming Alabama Women's College, which is where my mother graduated from. Ah, okay. It offered, right out of the gate, it offered commercial courses, and the way that this was set up was that the commercial department was offered stenography as a, as a set of courses and offered typewriting as a set of courses and offered telegraphy as a set of courses. And that was part of a three-year degree that was intended to be comprehensive. And the young women who went to the school would sign up for a couple of years of, of what we would consider to be general education courses. Okay. And then they were required to take what they called industrials. And Hmm. these commercial courses satisfied the industrials requirement. And the requirement was to take two industrials. There were other industrials, sewing, domestic arts, which doesn't mean housekeeping as much as it means slightly elevated home economics where women were expected to know some chemistry, for example, because we didn't have Food and Drug Administration making sure that our food wasn't poisoned. And so there were a lot of adulterated ingredients in food. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit more of an emphasis on a higher level of education for homemakers. So do you think that in that industrial for the for the Alabama Women's College, it clearly like secretarial careers? I mean, is that do you think that was the target or do you think there were other areas? Yes, yes, but a little bit more. Okay. In their catalog, if I'm remembering correctly because I don't have the catalog in front of me. If I'm remembering correctly, in their catalog they state in some ways that a woman might want to go out and create her own business Hmm. and so needed some of these skills to run her own business. Now, was that really something large or was it something as small as keeping good accounts for your butter and egg money? Remembering that that we might trivialize butter and egg money, but butter and egg money was a a serious source of income for a lot of uh, farm and small town families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I could also see, you know, if my memory serves me quick, you heard of a lot of businesses where you would have, you know, the wives or sisters that that were actually running the business, you know, with the the husband or brother or father, uh, keeping the books and, and making all the orders for the business. And so I think that probably was more common back then in terms of being almost kind of a, a entrepreneur behind the scenes, maybe more than in the front, you know. I, I was about to say that they were kind of, I, I, and this needs more study. I really think that there was a hidden entrepreneurial class of women who were running these uh, small businesses that were fronted by men mm-hmm. and were named for and, and, and about men. And we know this happened with the plantations in Antebellum. Uh, south. A lot of the men would would leave, especially in the California gold rush, and the women would just be there to run the farms. It happened in farms. It happened in plantations. Wherever there was property owned, 
a lot of times the women ran it, even if legally the man had to be responsible for it. You know, when you move away from, I guess, next after Montevallo, what, what do you see uh, coming forth from Alabama schools after Montevallo? Well, let me jump in between okay. Auburn and Montevallo. In 1890, Troy actually initiated its own commercial courses. A professor named P.B. Steifer, S-T-E-I-F-E-R, was the initial commercial course professor or instructor, and he offered penmanship, bookkeeping, single and double entry, hmm. commercial forms, business law, and, and similar kinds of training to whomever wanted to uh, be in this organization or be in this curriculum. I don't remember exactly how long it lasted because we've got some gaps in our coverage of, of the Troy catalogs, the class catalogs. And so it's a little difficult to tell when it ended, when it started. And judging from the 1890 catalog, I wonder how successful his bookkeeping and commercial forms and business law was relative to his penmanship. He offered plain hand and business hand and what, what he called, and I suspect there were classes in flourishing and one of the things that makes me think that maybe he had a focus on calligraphy, what we would call calligraphy uh, now. That makes sense. Was that in this catalog, there is a, a lovely picture of a drawn bird, almost like tribal tattoo, it's just a big black right. bird, with this scrolly flourish at the bottom, takes up a whole page of the college catalog, and... It's signed by him. So I imagine that he was more focused on the artistry of pen craft than he may have been on others. And, and I may be slandering the guy. I don't know. He may have been a great bookkeeper and a great teacher. And No, but that, that is an interesting thing. I, I would love to see that because I, I could imagine at that time for normal school education and, and for a teacher education, that would be some type of skill to be able to have to pass on to students at all different levels. So you could almost see, you know, someone being prepared to teach to have that progression of skills mm -hmm. that they could pass on to their students. That, that is, uh, that's the first I've heard of that. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's a pretty neat looking thing. And, and I agree with you about the concept of pen craft being an important thing. You know, we, we complain now and have for years that people's handwriting is terrible. And if you look at my notes, even I can't read my notes but because my handwriting is so awful. <laughs> but, uh, but we talk about how in the 19th century the, the hand looked very nice. People were, were trained in this. It was extremely important. And I suspect that there's a cultural reason with the striving of Victorians, even in America, to carve out a middle-class identity that respectability also had to do with having the time to write well, taking yes. the time so that your pen craft was, was pretty. Yeah, and, and I could almost, like you said, I think it's almost a place that you could use because of the way uh, communications took place back then. It would almost show an educated hand versus a non-educated hand. Uh, yeah. Well, and you can see that in letters written at the time uh, between people who were just dashing off quick notes. And in fact, uh, letters in World War I, some people who you know were educated had one hand and some people who you know were not well educated had a different hand. I hate to be too general, but that's relatively clear across the board.
So it, that would be my version of growing up in the 80s, like typing class and maybe word processing if you were sophisticated enough to know how to do that. <laughs> you can tell the difference between somebody who's as old as I am who learned on manual typewriters and somebody who learned on keyboards because those of us on manual typewriters just hammer those keys and, yes. you know, on the keyboards nowadays. And the, the people who actually know how to do keyboarding you know, just use the tips of their fingers. But uh, yeah, your next question that I know you're, you were trying to get around to is what happened after 1890. Well, there was a little bit of a gap between Stifer and the next person who came along, who was uh, John Euclid Porter. What a great name, J.E. Porter. And what we know about Porter is that in 1899, he started the State Normal Business College in Troy that was both a private business college and a division of Troy University, the State Normal College at Troy. We uh, did exchange this idea of business schools in general kind of moving their way into the academy. This is what was happening, is you would have these private business colleges that were coming into existence that then, you know, because of Wharton and, and schools like that coming on with a higher, I guess I'll consider more theoretical or management education mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it, that influence kind of moving throughout the country in different ways. And Porter Porter had that philosophy, didn't he? He, he did to a great extent. If, if we back up to the 1860s, in the Northeast, and I think it was in New York, a couple of guys named Bryant and Stratton created a business curriculum that was mostly these um, uh, these craft skills, bookkeeping, penmanship, commercial law, knowing how to fill out commercial forms, things like that. And think of commerce and, and stuff like that as, as we would think out about legal documents today. You had to know how to deal with all of this stuff. Uh, Single-entry bookkeeping, double-entry bookkeeping, these were kind of entry-level skills. Well, Bryant and Stratton created this franchise opportunity, and they scattered these schools all over the the U.S. and put all over in quotation marks because, you know, it's a relatively (laughs) small area. But they had short-duration training curricula, three months could get you in and out. Six months would get you kind of a diploma. Uh, You were well-trained after six months relative to other training and relative to apprenticeship training. And that's how Porter was trained. He was trained at Kentucky University's commercial department. He graduated in 1886, and he took either the Merchant's Scientific course which, quote unquote, which was from five to six weeks long, or he took the full diploma course, which was eight to 12 weeks long. Oh, wow. And full diploma. (laughs) And when he got out of school, we're not sure what he did for the next four years. An article that he apparently wrote about himself that has been picked up over and over in various newspapers is that he taught at Kentucky University, 
but their records don't support that. They it, maybe maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Maybe maybe there aren't any records. Um, the archives there could not show me that they had a record of him on faculty there. But nevertheless, he shows up in Macon, Georgia in 1890. And by 1891, he's working with Mercer University uh, in their Department of Practical Arts, where he taught bookkeeping and was the the department chair, the principal, and where his partner, C.E. Anderson, was the stenographer instructor. And I say partner because these two guys either before they started this Department of Practical Arts or after they started it, they started the Porter and Anderson Business College as an as a private entity. And it appears that they were teaching at their private school while they were teaching at Mercer simultaneously, which sounds like a conflict of interest to me, but I don't know. And what you were driving at was, by mentioning Wharton, was that Wharton is the first big university-based business college funded by a grant from Joseph Wharton to the University of Pennsylvania in 1881. And their job there was to look at the professionalization of management. They didn't talk in those terms, but looking back on them, you can see that's what they were doing. This was the beginning of an era when knowledge occupations needed to be paid. And you get paid for adding value. And you have to convince the people who are paying you that you're adding value. So what value do you add to knowing something? Right. Let me give you a little example. I used to cook professionally. I cooked professionally for about a decade. And at one of my jobs, my chef never got his chef's coat dirty. If he got his chef's coat dirty, <laughs> he'd go change it. And the rest of us were, were just, we'd have food just exploded all <laughs> over us. And he was absolutely pristine. And, and we were teasing him one day about that and said, why don't you ever get dirty? And he says, well, to get dirty, you have to do things. And we're like, yeah, you're right. You have to do <laughs> things. And, and he said, I don't get paid for what I do. I get paid for what I know. And I tell you, as dim a light as I have, (laughs) it went on, all 15 watts of it. And actually, that comment started me on my progression going into a doctoral program and looking at this idea of professionalization and the professionalization Mm -hmm. of late 19th and early 20th century knowledge occupations which you're seeing some of now because business management became a knowledge occupation. It's not about how pretty your hand was. It's not about how well you kept books. It's what you understood and what you knew. Not necessarily about the details of the business itself, but about the, as Horton's first director, Edmund James, said, it's about what you understand about the social he meant the culture, about the society that surrounds the business. Mm -hmm. Edmund James was, like I said, the first director of Wharton, and he was a real advocate for the professionalization of business management. He became the president of Northwestern University. He, He thought in terms of a broad knowledge base occupation as opposed to tech skills. You had to have the tech skills at least to get started. 
but he was thinking much bigger, that business functioned in society differently in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s than it had earlier. And Alfred Chandler goes into this of, uh, out of Harvard with his first big book, Scale and Scope, discussing how all of a sudden there was this, this massive explosion of, um, of large businesses. And anybody who studied the Gilded mm-hmm. Age knows this is true, right. that the leading edge of business is the corporate form. And these things are much bigger, and they required a lot more knowledge of business as a social entity than a local merchant who was keeping books. People like Edmund James talked about how business as an entity fit into the society around it with the corporate form as the basic form, Um, as opposed to the tiny partnership. A corporation can become huge where partnerships are kind of limited in the size that they can grow. And so he's saying, how do you as a manager, we, we need a managerial class. And by class, I mean group of people, not you know sitting inside of a classroom. We need a managerial class to guide good production and motivate employees and all of that inside the walls of the plant. But we also need these same managers or, or their contemporaries to understand how business fits into the society, which I keep coming back to. But uh, he even talked about knowledge of civic government as being Mm -hmm. an important point in how business managers were educated. Right. and, And it took a long time for that to get in. But we see Porter trying to do that in Troy. Porter and Troy only cooperated only had a partnership for a couple of years, from 1899 till 1901. The um, State Normal Business College was a part of the State Normal College. It was a partner. Not only was Porter the president of this entity called the State Normal Business College, but he was also the dean of the department called the State Normal Business College. And when he left or when Troy severed, I don't know who severed the relationship. That was what I wanted to ask you because that was a part of it that I couldn't understand, Marty, when I, when I was trying I to it decipher it. This idea that he held positions in both, I didn't realize that because I, I thought that it was just him alone. Uh, but that makes a lot more sense of what you're saying. That I, He's an entrepreneur. Yeah. Above all, he's a man on the make. Uh-huh. And he is trying to cobble together not only a – good, well-paying occupation, but a place of respect in whatever society he's in. He's a social climber. He's a a striver. He's an entrepreneur. He is, again, a man on the make, looking for the main chance. And for him, the main chance is a combination of his private entity with the prestige of a a chartered institution of the state. Mm-hmm. It allowed him to offer a diploma. Okay, um, explain diploma in, okay, in this context, yeah, because yeah. I think some of our, I'm sure some of our listeners probably. We, we think of diplomas as being the, uh, the end of a four-year or six-year term in, in college. And a diploma for, for people in the late 19th century frequently came at the end of a much shorter period of, of schooling. It had to be formal. So Porter 
wanted to offer diplomas. And because Troy University or State Normal College was empowered by the state to offer diplomas based on what that board of trustees thought was the right model upon which to offer diplomas, then he too could offer a diploma as well as a certificate. So he'd offer a certificate for his, what he called his regular business or his regular shorthand course, which was 10 weeks long. So you could get a certificate and uh, particularly like in the regular business course, you were taught how to, how to be very proficient at these entry-level skills. And the uh, regular shorthand course was to take dictation from less formal situations like uh, a boss dictating letters and things like that, and then converting them into proper business form, proper business letters, things like that. And you could do that, and you could be trained for that in 10 weeks, get a certificate. But if you took the, the professional business course, which not only gave you all of the courses and the basic skills, but then expanded on those skills and offered a few other broader courses, English grammar, sometimes a course similar to what we would consider to be economics now, economic geography, courses like that, and you'd go 12 to 16 weeks for those, you'd get a diploma. Okay. For 25 bucks tuition. <laughs> well, that's a lot of money then. When you don't <laughs> have, hey, listen, when you don't have $25, it might as well be 5000 Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. Yeah. And the professional shorthand course got you ready to take court recording dictation. That's what that was about. Then if you added on more of the general arts courses and stayed for the full year, you could get a master's degree. So that was the master's I was reading about. That was, that the was a one-year one program. One-year program okay. from a dead start. Oh, after, wow. Uh, once you got into college, into Troy uh, College, then you take that, that programmatic learning, you follow that program for about a year, and they would graduate you with a diploma and then with a master's degree. Now, how... How comparable is that to the kind of master's degree we offer now? I don't even think it had the same cachet. I think it was right. just, it, it meant advanced beyond this three to six month training period. You were a master at something, but ours is much more formal and programmatic. Yes, yes. So that, that rings true to you know, more of the basics of what you're talking about there instead of the way we think about a master's right. degree now. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's that's Just because we're using the same words, the times dictate the what the words mean. The right, context right. dictates what the words mean. Right. Yeah. As I read about Porter, he was really adamant that the education that he was providing through the business college was more like what you would see in the Northeast and not what you typically think of as that business education that was being provided through stenography and all that. He was doing that, but it was obvious he was doing something more than that, too. That That's very true. And I see him as something of a bridge 
between the, the short training courses and the longer but not yet fully matured concept of a course in business management, a professional course in business yeah. management. But you're right. It's obvious that he is trying to incorporate a lot of the concepts that are coming out of the Northeast. It's also a sales pitch. Exactly. That's yeah. what I was going to say. It's also he a was, sales pitch. You know, you, you said it, and we, we kind of saw it through this, is all these private business colleges popping up. You said, you know, they could franchise out. or mm-hmm. You know, I know there were many of those that that were out there, and I could see that he was trying to position his as it was a sales pitch. It was more than just, you know, your typical – and, and he also made is, whereas he said many times, this this curriculum is very much like the curriculums coming out of the Northeast that yes. you would find at the best colleges in the in the Northeast. He also said, but students really need these skill sets too to make them immediately. We would call it immediately employable. But mm-hmm. he said talked about a value to their to the business owners who no longer have have time or resources to train as apprentices, to bring people in and show them the ropes of, uh, and let them fail. They could do all of that. They could learn that trial and error um, direction. They could learn that set of skills in his business course, but they could also learn more. In fact, it's something for everyone. <laughs> he put out a magazine. Yes. For about a year. There are four issues of it, and their focus changes over time, which I found pretty interesting. And you found these well, uh, I, journals. I, you found those at the Department of Archives and, and History. They were you? fortunate enough to, to pass on. There were a few things that I, I just said, what do you have on this? Yeah. And they were able to identify those, which I thought was pretty cool. But every one of these magazines or these editions would have the names of the students that were in the program, where they were from the kind of work they were doing, even maybe talk a little bit about some of the graduates, the success of the graduates. Um, Again, his sales sales pitch. pitch. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm always real skeptical. I'm really kind of a cynic, and (laughs) and I'm always real skeptical about people tooting their own horn. But the more I saw of that, and I'd love to track down a few of these students and see what they did, I I suspect there actually was something there that he really was offering a set of services that were necessary. He may have been hyping it, but I don't think he was really overselling it. You know, I, I guess if you look down the line, though, you know, once you had the business, uh, the, the state normal business college and Porter went away, business education reemerged in the normal schools or the, the teaching colleges or however you want to describe it as a discipline. I know... Um, what years do you did that come back? You know, as a well, there was a little, little flourishing. It's obvious that the State Normal College at Troy wanted to reincorporate at least some of the commercial training back into the curriculum. And so, in 1911, they hired a fellow named Joseph Boyd. I, I want to say they hired him as the commercial course educator, but they also hired him as the treasurer of the university, okay. basically the treasurer of the faculty. And he taught stenography, typing, and single and double entry bookkeeping. As part of the regular course of the of the school, it was called the commercial course, and it was like a set of electives that you could take that led to a certificate. That's what he offered. He only did that to 1916. And then we don't see 
any new commercial attempts, commercial curricula attempt, until after World War II. So we went 30 years without another attempt. But in 1946, Troy, after the war, we start recovering population, student population. Then with the GI Bill, there's provision in the GI Bill that offered vocational education money, even to four-year liberal arts colleges or normal schools, teachers colleges, basically anybody, anybody running an institution. If they had vocational specific programs, they could get this money. Students would be given the money and they could they could spend it there. A lot of colleges developed vocational programs because of that. Yale developed a cooking school that has oh, become wow. the Culinary Institute of America Interesting. in 1946 in order to capture some of this money. Well, Troy did that. In the fall of 1946, they developed a new Department of Business Education. And from what I can tell, that's the beginning of the current College of Business that we have here now, of which you're the dean. They began with one professor, and she taught commercial training, shorthand typing, accounting, office management, uh, general business education like law and banking and marketing. But she had help by enlisting people from other departments. Everybody was a little bit more of a generalist. Okay. some of these people had backgrounds in courses that added on to what she was teaching as a skill set. And this this emerged not as a battle between skill sets and professional knowledge, but as a more mature professional approach that continued to value skills themselves. They didn't jettison the skill aspect. Okay. Which is kind of a hallmark of Troy, not jettisoning that skills aspect of uh, education slash training. Like I said, the department began with one lead instructor. It expanded, uh, changed. uh, That instructor lasted two years. And then then they, uh, they changed to a different instructor, still a woman. And they added courses in two courses added in secretarial practice. I'm not sure what that means. And in tax accounting, which I, I am very sure what that means. Yes. Uh, you know, very specialized accounting right. because we then had an income tax code that was spread across the face of the of the nation. And so I think that is probably the genesis of real business education at Troy. But the Troy mantle for business education goes back to 1890. It's just so interesting, this project. I don't know if, as we kind of wrap up today, I mean, can you think of anything that that during this process that surprised you the most or something that you came away with that was like, wow, this was like a really a shocking thing for me? Honestly, the porter was a real surprise to me. And the way he set up that partnership and the way the college set up the partnership was pretty surprising to me. I didn't realize that that was something that they would even consider legitimate. But I'm, I'm also not surprised, given my background in that era. This was an era where there, the rules were wide open. People, people had not established best practices. Things that we would consider to be conflicts of interest now 
were not considered to be conflicts of interest then. Things that we consider now to be normal were considered a little bit shady back then. You know, mm-hmm. people getting paid right. uh, for doing volunteer work, uh, quote unquote volunteer work, was frowned upon. But if you're devoting your full time to this so-called volunteer presidency of an organization or something like that, how are you making your money? Right. This was an era of democratization of economic opportunity as well, where people who weren't independently wealthy had to make money from what they were doing. And so we see this is another era, like the Jacksonian era, in which entrepreneurs and people tearing down barriers to entry, some, some of which is good and some of which not so good, right. are, are, are flourishing during this era. So I was both surprised and not surprised. Marty, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed the time. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for having me. My guest for this episode of The Double Dome has been historian and director of the Wiregrass Archives, Dr. Marty Olaf. We hope that you'll subscribe to The Double Dome wherever you get your podcasts and give us a high rating in the iTunes store. That, in addition to giving a shout-out on social media, will help us find people to enjoy The Double Dome podcast. The Double Dome is produced by the Sorrell College of Business and Troy University. This episode was produced in the studios of Troy Public Radio by Austin Toy with help from Kyle Gassett. So until we put our heads together again, I'm Judson Edwards, and this is The Double Dome. Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu business.